Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have two guests. Uh, Rebecca Wingo is Associate Professor and Director of Public History at the University of Cincinnati. Also on the show is Jacob Freifeld. He is the Director of the Center of Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Along with Richard Edwards, they have written a book uh, entitled Homesteading the Plains Toward a New History, uh, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, Rebecca, Jacob, welcome to History 605. Thank you for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Ben. The three of you make the claim in the book that uh, previous historians have fundamentally misunderstood a major piece of legislation in America's history, the Homestead Act, and its impact on the United States. Interestingly, you say the public's understanding of the Homestead Act is probably closer to the truth than most historians and their understanding uh, of the Homestead Act. I wonder if you could kind of walk us through the book, but just as a disclaimer, I'd like to uh, kind of uh, share with you that I first became interested in this topic when I was working on an education program that we had this summer, taking teachers around to different sites in South Dakota, going to places about the South Dakota history, and while in DeSmet, one of the homestead sites, so if you go to DeSmet, South Dakota, uh, just east of town on Highway 14 is a family who now owns the original Ingalls homestead, and they've made it into a site where people can come and visit and do many of the things that Laura and the Ingalls family did. It's really quite amazing, and the teachers really enjoyed visiting there. But one of the staff asked me a question that I was embarrassed I did not know the answer to. And that was how many South Dakota homesteaders proved up. And as after I'm reading your book, I'm realizing that's probably knowable, but I'd have to do some digging um, about that. How, how would you go about finding out that answer? Rebecca's pointing at me right now. Um, <laughs> so the data from the book comes from, because uh, generally the homestead data were sort of poor over time. And so um, based on Donaldson's data, whose first name I can't remember, who put together homestead data until 1880, and then the general land office records, which can take you through the rest of the homesteading um, period. Um, and particularly, it, homesteading probably falls off in the Dakotas in mid-20th century, 1930s, 1940s. The law stays on the books until, I think, the 80s in you know, Alaska. Yeah, so if you can go, go to those two um, areas of statistics, which I think... Is, we, we have a website that's still, I think, live um, okay. for Homesteading the Plains. And all of those, um, both of those sources are on there. So you can just add up 
the number of successful homestead client proved up homesteads okay. in um, South Dakota. Though for some of those years, it might be lumped in as the Dakotas. So it actually might be hard to get a raw South Dakota. Number. I, okay. I remember I gave up on trying to calculate for South the, more, the Dakotas alone in another article I wrote on homesteading. That makes sense. That would be Dakota territory. Paul Wallace Gates also actually has excellent statistics on um, homesteading prove up. So he he has a okay. sort of magisterial history of uh, land law. If you can find it, it has tables in the back, but that's on the website too. So actually, yeah, just go to our website. Um, okay. And that's, uh, well, we'll put the link in the show notes then for you, yeah. for the website. Uh, the other thing that drew my interest in this is my father-in-law this year marked 150 years on the family farm that was homesteaded by his great-grandfather. And uh, talking to the Farm Bureau, they have records of 13 total farms in South Dakota that are currently owned and farmed by the family of the original homesteader. And I was shocked that the number was so low. Anyway, all that got me very interested in this. And so I was pleased to find your book and, and how you went after it. So just as a, as a little primer then, uh, I was wondering if you, one of the two of you wants to kind of give a, just a brief introduction of why the Homestead Act, why Congress passed it, what was the hope? Uh, and what was the reasons behind um, its uh, passing? Well, the Homestead Act passed in 1862, uh, which is during the middle of the Civil War. So Abraham Lincoln had the idea, of course, that there was all this free land in the West, which is a misnomer because it's all indigenous land. But he had this idea that the public domain was out there and ready to be settled. But there was no guarantee that the Union was going to win the Civil War. And so he wanted to prevent something along the lines of Kansas from ever happening again. And so he put the stipulation in the Homestead Act that you can get a quarter section for free from the federal government so long as you haven't taken up arms against the government. Okay. So he's really trying to populate the West in general, but specifically populate the West with folks who do not support the enslavement of African-Americans. This sort of grows out of pre-Lincoln administration Republican politics as well, right? Because they're, they want to stop slavery's extension into the territories, which is actually the thing that gets Lincoln um, back involved um, in politics directly, um, is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, but and they actually are able to pass a Homestead Act during the Buchanan administration because there are enough Republicans and Northern Democrats in Congress by that point. But Buchanan sort of friendly to, to uh, the South, vetoes it. And so there's really not much debate over the Homestead Act, even when they pass it um, in the 37th Congress. They okay. just sort of gets Good. through and um, it goes into effect on January 1st, 1863. So the only changes Lincoln made were, was the take up arms against the government uh, clause. And otherwise, all the debating is pretty much done from... 1858 or so. It would it would have been weird if that would have been in there already. The, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't. Well, that's very interesting. And and what did they? Uh, you go into kind of what their hopes were, and then what it achieved. I guess we can save that to the end. But you do uh, assert that that uh, it was probably one of the more impactful, uh, significant pieces of legislation the United States Congress ever passed. Uh, probably right up there with maybe the some of the Veterans Act after the Second World War. It is, I think, one of the important sweeping social policies ever enacted by Congress. And I think it gets overlooked a lot, in part because probably the most important sweeping social policy ever enacted by Congress happens 
um, within the same period, right? You get the 13th Amendment. Um, <laughs> and the Homestead Act sort of gets lost in there. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, extremely important. And it's because of that hope. It's this hope that's you don't really expect from the 19th century that you're going to give away free land. It's a, it's almost smacks of a 20th century social policy that you're going to, um, the right. federal government's literally going to help out um, Americans to get a start in life. I think even more than that, though, and this interpretation originally sort of comes from Blake Bell, who was a former historian of the Homestead National Monument. But he interprets it as one of America's first immigration laws. So one mm. of the things that it did, it said, you you can come from abroad and you can claim free land in the American West. All you have to do is renounce your citizenship. And by the time you prove up, so for most people, that's five years. Uh, later, it was three. They just had to become a naturalized citizen of the United States. So it was sweeping piece of legislation, not just for Americans, but also for immigrants, too. And it wasn't until, ooh, I'm going to get it wrong, the 18... 90s that they or 1880s that they passed law that said that uh, Chinese immigrants could homestead as well. Uh, so it continued to expand even after its passage. I think part of that too comes from a, a fear of, I mean, because we take wage labor for granted. I think there's sort of this, the fear of the growth of the middle class in the 1850s and 1860s is these folks who are never going to be independent. They're going to be dependent the rest of their lives. Um, and so part of the thinking with the Homestead Act was, oh, well, this will be an opportunity for these workers to go out and become uh, independent, which, I mean, generally doesn't happen, right? It was like farmers moving west, people working in a textile mill. <laughs> let, let me go to Nebraska to farm. Well, it does seem that the federal government is trading away something it has in massive amounts. I mean, millions and millions of acres. And it's trying to wage the civil war which is an expensive proposition and so cash is going toward paying for the army and the war expenses and so forth so it's kind of a good mix of they can't really use the land to fight the war except in sales i suppose raise money from land sales but. and that's i mean that's a debate that happens um folks are like well we should be selling this land to pay for um pay for the war and even that's how u.s land policy worked for decades was that mm -hmm. um, the u.s sells land puts the money in the treasury um, for usually pretty cheap prices. But the, the argument is that if, if we settle people on these lands and are able to collect taxes from them and they're producing on this land, it's actually going to raise far more revenue than we can raise from just the selling the land a buck 25 an acre. Yeah. Okay, so our book also very narrowly focuses on yeah. homesteaders and the Homestead Act, but the Homestead Act cannot be divorced from the dispossession of Indian lands. So at the, at the same time, the government is seeing this as a way to profit. They're also seeing it as a way to save money, even though they're selling the land for very cheap. If they can get more white settlers onto the American frontier, then they can continue to sequester indigenous nations onto smaller and smaller parcels. And the fact that there are settlers means that it is establishing order in the view of the American government mm -hmm. uh, and therefore would actually cost less in the long run when you think about the cost of wars in the West, not just human life on both sides, mm -hmm. but also sort of thinking about funding the army in such a way. Um, yeah, even in debates when when they pass it the first time, Buchanan vetoes it. There, I think it's literally. This is almost a direct quote. Um, a senator says, "Well, we're gonna. It's gonna help us replace the tomahawk with the plow, 
right out there. Not, not trying to keep this stuff a secret. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask all. you for Yeah. And okay. this whole idea of Jeffersonian's agrarian reform doesn't leave the American West, despite the fact that not all the land is actually that good for farming. Uh, it like That is still part of the federal government's sort of mission and focus in the American West among indigenous nations, among white settlers, among immigrant settlers. They really want to turn this all into farmland because they see that as the most direct route towards civilization. Let's circle back around. We can fin uh, finish that thought. I did want to get into the dispossession arguments you make, which I think were particularly very important in uh, North and South Dakota. I wonder if you could go into Fred Shanna's math. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you guys so quickly just show how he does that. I, I don't know that an undergrad student could get away with that. Why? <laughs> how did he? And this guy won a Pulitzer Prize. So <laughs> no, no one's reading the notes. That's what it tells you. Right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess it's worth just saying that uh, a lot of sort of the history of homesteading and the negative view of homesteading by scholars came from. Um, Fred Shannon's book, The Farmer's Last Frontier, which I'm not going to remember what year it was published in, but it's in the, like the mid-century, right? right. Um, so right. it's a long time. It, it's, it's hold sway for a long time. And he argues that I think less than a sixth of new farms were formed through the Homestead Act, and um, two-thirds of homesteaders failed to prove successfully prove up their claims. And so like his math on the first one is, is right. So like between 1860 and 1900, less than a sixth of new farms are formed by the Homestead Act. The problem is um, Shannon uses numbers from the entire United States, including the states where you're not allowed to homestead. So yeah, I mean, I'm shocked that homesteading wasn't a major factor in farm formation in states where there was no homesteadable land. So if you use just the homesteading states, you'll find that 25% um, of all um, new farms formed were from homesteading. Um, and that's, I mean, that's still not perfect because Illinois, where I'm sitting now, was a homesteading state, but I think there were only like 30, uh, that might even be high, 30 homesteads okay. grouped up in Illinois because in 18, is 53 or 57, there's this land graduation law that re significantly reduces the price of all the land in the old Midwest. And so in the late 1850s, most of that land sells, some of it for like, two cents an acre. If you take out all of those, all of those states that have hardly any homesteads and really just focus on the 17 states that we generally consider the American West, unless you're, unless you're at the Midwest History Conference, then the Great Plains become the Midwest for, for a weekend. Um, but if you those <laughs> states that you really consider the American West, um, must have talked to Yeah. Yeah. I, Love John, and I, I, I play along. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you just uh, take those uh, states, about 64% of new farms you'll find uh, came from homesteaded land. You just have to correct your logic, and you see that homesteading is a major um, factor in farm formation. Where you're sitting in South Dakota, and the Dakotas, because again, it's difficult to separate the Dakotas at this period, I think it's closer to 90% of new farm formation during that period. So Shannon, yeah, he's just, his math is right there. Um, his mm -hmm. logic is wrong. And now when you talk about his um, two-thirds um, failed to prove up, 
that, that's where his math is just wrong. He's not including um, unproved up homesteads for the period um, after um, 1900, because you have up to seven years to prove up your homestead. And if you just correct his um, math, you'll find that somewhere between 55 and 63% of homesteaders successfully proved up. So okay. It's, okay. It, it, it turns the accepted knowledge for over a, uh, half a century uh, on its head. And if textbook companies contacted you and said, oh, shoot, we got this wrong. We got a, what's been the response from, I think, the wire? Uh, really crickets. not much. <laughs> so, yeah, crickets. And, and in fact, Rick and I, because I, I was a, a, a postdoc at um, the Center for Great Plains Studies for a while after this, we started sending out like, letters to textbook companies with the book. I, I think I think we even sent one to Eric Foner, which is... A bold, a bold move for a young a scholar. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, didn't hear back. <laughs> well, we'll have to get Eric on the phone. Excuse me, Eric, you, you've got it wrong here. Well, it's it just kind of, it's a great lesson in showing why uh, historians revisit questions previously asked, why we check our sources uh, and our math in some cases, and why maybe things kind of come into received understanding. Uh, by scholars, but interestingly, uh, the public has a pretty a, a view of it closer to what you say than you know. They they know it was hard. There's tons of evidence that this was not a piece of cake to do, but uh, that uh, many succeeded at it, and it, uh, it it's the formative thing that populates the Great Plains. I will say that um, most non-Indians have a very fond view of the Homestead Act. Yes. True and most indigenous peoples do not right. for very obvious reasons. The organizing principle of your book is kind of taking on these four common claims about the act. Uh, and the fourth one, and you devote a chapter to that, is homesteading caused Indian land dispossession. So let's just do it backwards. That's kind of come up. You walk through two main ways, largely driven by the time period in which it's happened and the establishment of certain reservations for, say, the the Ponca or the Pawnee or the Kickapoo in, in Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska. What's the difference up and down the Great Plains with uh, the Dakota Way and then the other uh, sections of the country? Well, I think that what this chapter does is it establishes a couple different patterns for how homesteaders acquired lands from the federal government. And it compares the, the dispossession indigenous lands to the timing of the peak of homesteading in those territories. The chapter really establishes these patterns, but it is a good starting place. It is not the ending point. I think that there's more work to be done, particularly in the Dakotas and in Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma, Oklahoma, in order to really interrogate what this meant. So both of those places were places where homesteaders were directly responsible for opening up Indian lands and for dispossession of indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. But if we were to, again, this book narrowly focuses on the Homestead Act and homesteaders, if we were to place that into a bigger context of white settlement and settler colonialism, all of these policies are sort of intertwined and mm -hmm. uh, build upon each other, all with the intention of dispossession. So the chapter really sort of lays out, well, were these homesteaders in these specific areas, like the Nebraska pattern, the Colorado pattern, are they to blame for the dispossession of indigenous peoples? Individually, no. Collectively, yes. 
in the cases I, I, of the Dakotas and Indian Territory? The answer is yes. I think, yeah, I think historical blame, like, I don't know if blame is the best word either, right? Because, I mean, the thing with the Homestead Act, too, is uh, it shows us the, one of the, the issue with looking at history from, I think, multiple perspectives as well, uh, where opportunity for some folks is an incredible tragedy for mm -hmm. other folks. And yeah, and so like in Nebraska, when homesteaders arrive, yeah, sure, and sure, the folks have already been dispossessed, right, of the native folks who've been dispossessed of their land. The Homestead Act ends up being a distribution mechanism, right, for, for that land. Or in the Dakotas, you have folks like Oscar Michaud, uh, who ends up being like the first great black American filmmaker, who is claiming he homesteads, but he's homesteading on rosebud land, so he has to pay <laughs> hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, um, to homestead on that land, which goes into trust day of driving that land and that money is of course embezzled and spent away before it yeah. ever gets to the, the native people um and so yeah he's literally responsible for dispossession of um and, and, and there's uh, scholars doing great work on this too right is it julius i'll never remember his last name is it wilm or wilm who's written an ex excellent article sort of um critiquing um our argument about the nebraska pattern there were perhaps more native people uh, in the region still when the mm -hmm. homesteaders were showing up, which is, that, that's toward the new history. Right? The hinting, the hint in your title, toward the new history. Well, and it seems to me that's a part of the immigration policy too, as you mentioned before, there's, there's Germans, Norwegians, um, Czechs uh, coming from very troubled places in Europe to uh, what is today, South Dakota, North Dakota, and farming that that land and if that story interests you uh, karen hansen's book encounter uh, encounter on the great plains mm -hmm. it's called it's uh, I, fantastic and it deals with a norwegian settler showing up and living with uh, native neighbors yes uh i often raid bibliographies and that's that's a, a, a title i rated from your bibliography it'll be on my hit list for the for the next uh thing to read another one of the things that you claim here or that you take on is that the act was a minor factor in land ownership uh, and the thought, previous thought that most people purchase their land. Um, another thing is that most fail to prove up. And I think we've kind of, we've certainly dealt with that. And then the, the third issue is that the process was rife with corruption, which in 19th century America, there's no shortage of corruption. So why would the, why would this be any different? Right. But you, you kind of very in pristine sense, uh, discuss the really absence of evidence about particular homestead fraud. You know, when you narrow it down, there might be other guys doing other things um, that are fraudulent, but on this thing with uh, making a claim and proving up and so forth, there's some, but what do you think is the, is there an inborn mechanism inside the way the law is crafted that kind of keeps that down or is there communities forming that help to keep that in line? So one of my favorite things about the fraud story is that a lot of scholars, and I won't call them out by name, they're in the book, um, but a lot of scholars cite a study that continued to exaggerate, like, and every time it got passed on, it continued to exaggerate the extent of fraud to the point that we have claims that say that the Homestead Act was rife with fraud up to 50%. We tried to find the study and we went back and back and back and we followed every single source and it doesn't exist. And if it does exist, somebody please let us know where it is. Uh, we, we hit every single brick wall we could possibly hit. But when we calculated 
our rates of fraud from a study that we did in Nebraska. So again, this is one of those places where there is still tons of room to grow and understand the Homestead Act differently in different situations. But in our sample, I think, what was the high end, Jake? Like 6.7% or something? Yeah, I, think was, I think it might be a little bit high, 8.5, about the same as Medi Medicaid fraud or Medicare fraud. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it was difficult too, to come up with that because we were sort of racking our brains because the initial scholars, when they came up with this idea that there's a lot of fraud, they're just sort of citing these cases in newspapers that suggested there was fraud. And a lot of times you'll see this image of someone standing by their house that's what, 12 by 14, and he's it's like a Lincoln log house, right? It's yeah. inches rather than feet. And that was actually originally printed um, to critique a, di a completely different law. And so we're like, well, how do you disprove fraud? So uh, we thought, well, maybe if we just if we just assume that anyone who sold their land within a certain amount of time, um, a year, a month, two months, was committing fraud, like uh, they were, they never intended on staying on their land. They were speculating from the beginning, and so the yeah, we we got um, about eight point five percent is a fraud rate when we did that, um, which is about the same that you can expect in a, federal, a modern federal program. Okay. And I think, yeah, and I think you mentioned mechanisms within the law. I think it helps. You had to call witnesses to help you prove up. So you'd go in the land office and prove up, and you had to print to the newspaper beforehand that you're going to try to prove up your land. And land's valuable in these communities. So if you're not doing it right, someone's going to show up and contest that claim. And good luck finding people to, to witness for you as well. Right. Yeah. Like if you built your house in inches, it would take the entire community coming together and saying oh yeah that man definitely built a house and deserves this land he's bona fide for sure right. there was no community out there that was ever going to do that and again this is limited to the great plains too i think there needs to be more work done on this um because we're dealing with um examples in custer and dawes county nebraska where perhaps there wasn't as much uh, it wasn't as uh, lucrative to commit fraud because I, I know there are some cases when you get out to like California where there's it's logging territory, there are homesteaders who like go out to work for the day and come home, and like the logging company is literally like taking their house down. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so they, in, in other places the reality might be different, but um, there, we we need that data. So I need so yeah. I need some graduate student out there <laughs> to write a dissertation. Well, homesteaders on Oregon or something. There's the call. <laughs> Well, it seems ironic that there's a fraudulent claim of fraud uh, at the end of the day. When you read this, <laughs> some, some fraudster or took a, a newspaper cartoon and extrapolated that onto another subject and made the claims that uh, really confused the issue. So one of the things I also wanted to uh, chat with you about was the impact on Peer and then Gregory Chamberlain and Presho with that later phased land rush. I guess, to the Rosebud and, and that Harry Truman participated in that. How American history might have been different had he been, had he proved up and gotten his claim. I don't know. Your note in there, who did he blame for not, uh, I might stump you here. Who, who does he blame for not getting his claim? I think he uses the term real Americans or something. I think he's, he's <laughs> mad at the, right in your book, he's mad at the immigrants who are, who are, booting, oh, or crowding out the competition and that, uh, at first, uh, Oscar Michaud, uh, again, the, the 
guy who ends up being a, a great filmmaker, he he goes to the lottery and he doesn't like his number is high as well. And he has to go come and purchase someone else's relinquishment, which is technically illegal, but everyone looks the other way. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next steps? Let's talk about how uh, if this is uh, toward a new history, we've talked about a few things. What are the what are the holes uh, ripe with opportunity for uh, people to investigate and find out more about the Homestead Act? Well, before Wingo um, throws her two cents in, I'm going to shamelessly plug here. So after we finished this study, um, I was postdoc in the Center for Great Plains Studies, and the National Park Service approached uh, Rick Edwards and I and said, you know, we really liked your work on homesteading, but we, we the story we tell at the Homestead National Park in Nebraska is a really white story. Um, we know there are black homesteaders. There weren't any in your study in Nebraska. You didn't find any, but maybe that's something we can look into. And so we did. Um, and we just published a book in August, Rick and I, called The First Migrants, How Black Homesteaders' Quest for Land and Freedom Heralded America's Great Migration. And it tells that, um, opens up that aspect of the okay. homesteading story, African-Americans homesteading in the Great Plains. Um, and, and you'll hear about, I mean, some Dakota stories in that, in yeah. South Dakota. Um, near Pierre, uh, the Magruder family homesteaded as well as the Blairs. Mm-hmm. And I talked with Leo Magruder. Um, it's an oral history oh. work with him. And he just passed away um, this year. So my best memories from that project are sitting with Leo and yeah. hearing about uh, his homesteader stories. Um, and yeah, so it, it, we talk about the some 25,000, we think, uh, Black Americans who left the South to claim land in the West and claim about 650,000 acres of land, um, about the size of Rhode Island. If you put it, if you put it all together, uh, Rebecca, what what do you think as far as uh, onward to the next uh, phases of this of this stuff subject? So I think that uh, one of the areas that I'm most excited about is actually based on some data that uh, Betsy Jameson has been collecting for decades, and uh, she's really looking at the borderlands between Canada and the United States, particularly in the Dakotas, and how indigenous women border crossed in order to get land. So hmm. the the Homestead Act was not designed for indigenous peoples. You had to be a citizen of the United States, first of all, um, or you had to be an immigrant. Well, in Canada, if you were Métis, you could cross the border and you could claim land in the Dakotas. And so she's been really trying to tease out these indigenous women homesteaders. And I think that that's going to be a really groundbreaking way to think about the borderlands and to think about indigeneity and to think about participation in colonialism. And I'm really hoping she gets something out soon. (laughs) So someone who's, say, of uh, French descent and Dakota descent establishing a homestead claim based on their their based on their status as an immigrant how so if their family both french and dakota had been in north america for centuries how would they would they say that they were an immigrant well they were coming from canada down into the united states interesting very so she has a she has a spreadsheet i think there's probably about 600 women on there, some of whom are indigenous coming from Canada, some of whom are sort of otherwise code switching and finding ways to to create space and opportunity for themselves. Right. And the government right. is very focused on limiting those opportunities. You point out 
let me find the quote here, that both conservatives and liberals praise the act because each finds in it something of value. The right celebrates the fact that it created many small property holders, and the left praises it because it was so democratic, not restricting its benefits to white men of property, but rather opening up opportunity to nearly everyone. I think, yeah, that, that's certainly how it's, I've heard many people express uh, views kind of on both sides, both sides of that. Uh, and I think many people, though, are shocked that there were so many women homesteaders. That's, I found that to be the case when you look across the land plats in our archives and you see uh, women's names, no husbands listed. Uh, and you, you spend some time going through that in one of the chapters, too, about um, that in an effort to kind of tease out how many single women came. Did they become widows? And then by the time they proved up, they were they were widowed, widowed, and how the government classified uh, all their status and so forth. Um, it prompts me to think if um, so a fair number of women were successfully running their farms and ranches, that would probably fuel uh, women's suffrage movements. Is there a direct correlation that you saw in looking at that, or did you... Um, see any kind of connection between that and uh, out in the West, you know, Wyoming, Nebraska, the Dakotas uh, beat the national 19th amendment um, by a few months or maybe a couple of decades. So is there a link, do you think? I don't know, but it is really interesting to think about women as landowners because that's how men would get the right to have the capital and the political power and the economic power and the social power. And so women are entering into basically the same category as men, as landowners. And so they have also a very vested interest in other rights that go along with that that would otherwise be denied them. Uh, so I, I can't imagine that they're not related in some capacity. I don't know how directly related they are. Mm -hmm. But what we find that women are doing kind of across the West is there are the formation of all women towns and settlements and clusters. We don't really have any of those in our study area, but there's some rather famous ones in Montana and sort mm. of otherwise scattered around the West where they're, they're, they're literally supporting each other and creating community based off of sort of the shared singleness, whether that be a young woman who just never married or whether that be somebody who was widowed or uh, was widowed during the process of homesteading or in a few of our cases, at least deserted or divorced, which was also a very peculiar category at the time. Divorce more so than desertion, I would imagine. But and you'll find with uh, women homesteaders, too, as you go further west, you'll find a higher percentage of the, the people who prove up are women because I, it, it becomes much easier for a married woman to keep her claim after 1895. Um, before that, the government was like, well, a husband and wife can't both have homesteads until they realize single women are going out claiming land and then not being able to prove it up because they get married in the interim, um, which sort of works against the government's goals of people in the land. So they decide you can, if, you, if you've claimed your land before, um, before marriage, you can uh, still prove it up. Um, Is that an amendment they pass later? Um, it's yeah, it's uh, part of the administrative state. So if you All look right. through, the, they, they would, yeah, they would release these um, general land office circulars. They would amend the homes, the homestead laws um, and, 
that changed, yeah, in 1895. Right. And I think Jonathan Fairchild, who was until recently the historian at Homestead National Park, wrote a short paper on women's suffrage and homesteading. I think he found some links that a lot okay. of the um, suffragists in the West were were from homesteading families or homesteaders themselves. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned the General Land Office. One of the things I found remarkably refreshing was the latitude that the General Land Office uh, administrator was given in interpreting the statute. Uh, you know, the, the basic goal of the law was to settle the West. And if you're making a decision that was not complying with that objective of the law, then you should redirect your your guidance, your what today we would call government regulations and so forth. That was, you know, eminently practical, I guess, but uh, it, it certainly could be abused. But um I would imagine there would yeah. be a minute or two that might jump on somebody if he got too far out of line. Yeah, my, my historical sort of imagination. Sometimes you get these um, in the local land offices, a guy who's like asked for guidance because someone hasn't followed the exact letter of the law. And I can imagine someone in the general land office opening this and like rolling their eyes. Like, yes, give them their land. <laughs> this is the point. Right. It's the whole point. <laughs> Those general land office circulars. Which we had an we had another colleague, Rhea Wick, who meticulously mined those for any mention of the Homestead Act because they're about all land law, okay. <laughs> and so the Homestead Act is just one tiny little portion of that. And the way that we and we have like at the back in the back of the book, we actually have a summary of all of them, um, just because we had done the labor. So why not get it published? The way I've always understood those is the amendments that they pass to the regulations around the Homestead Act really are either, oh, hey, this thing is really working out there. We should make it permanent. And then the other is, oh, boy, we, re we really messed up. It's time to, it's time to revise, it's just like they did with the, with the marriage law or the marriage component of the law. Okay. Uh, they, they pass other regulations that are just that continue to kind of narrow it in these other capacities while it's expanding in some others. And it's fascinating. You're just like, oh, this is, I'm watching the bureaucracy happen, which is kind of like watching paint dry, but, <laughs> you know, still interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Well, your book was, um, again, thanks for uh, writing it. It was um, anybody that can go back and dispel a, a common myth that's been repeated by uh, college and high school textbooks for decades is uh, worth their salt. That you've earned your stripes as a historian, I think. In my book, I, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so, thanks for um, coming on History Six Hundred Five and chatting about your work. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. It's great being. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.